The Tidal Change Podcast is a production of the Alaska Teen Media Institute and the Nature Conservancy in Alaska. Welcome to Tidal Change, real stories from Alaska about the wonder, hope, and abundance of a life at sea. The men and women at work in Alaska's commercial fishing fleet see the world around them up close. Bringing in America's favorite seafood takes them out to sea for weeks and months, meaning they're among the first to truly witness climate changing before their very eyes. What does all this mean for the ocean, for their livelihoods, or their families in the next generation? Tidal Change and a great lineup of guests is here to explore. The Tidal Change podcast is hosted by me, Dustin Solberg, a commercial fisherman myself and a staffer for the Nature Conservancy in Alaska. Welcome aboard. In this episode of Tidal Change, Three Alaska fishing boat captains are along to guide us. Mike Weber is a lifelong commercial fisherman from Cordova, Alaska, who fishes the wild waters and big surf of the famous Copper River Flats. He's been fishing since he was four years old. Mike says that in those days, the whole family was the fishing crew. So typically most boats had two to three kids, and almost every boat had two to three kids. So it's not like when we were kids, we weren't out there alone. We had our cousins, we had our friends, you know. Um, everybody was kind of a family operation. Linda Benkin is from the port of Sitka on the vast Gulf of Alaska, a place at the edge of the incredible coastal temperate rainforest of the Tongass in southeast Alaska. I came to Alaska uh, from the East Coast after a year of college, wanting to see Alaska, always having loved wild places and thinking of Alaska as the ultimate wild place. And with a fairly vague idea of earning money for college by, by commercial fishing. She now fishes with her family on their fishing vessel, the Woodstock. She started fishing in 1982. It took quite a while to uh, be offered a first job in fishing. I would just look for opportunities to help people when they had their boats hauled out of the water. I'd offer to paint or scrape or do whatever work I could do and get paid a little bit to do it. Andrew Smallwood is from Cordova. He's a retired bush pilot and captains a fishing boat in the beautiful blue waters of Prince William Sound. You're out on the water in one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It's, you're in the Alps, but on a boat. Um, you're surrounded by huge mountains, enormous glaciers, um, dense forest on the lower slopes. Um, in Prince William Sound, mostly calm, jade-colored water. You're living your life on a movie set uh, of a very high production movie. You never know what's going to happen when you leave harbor. It can be a complete disaster. You might even come back without your boat um, or not come back at all. Or you might strike it rich and be flush with cash. 
Life on a fishing boat can be as varied as the seafood itself. Think wild salmon and halibut, cod, shrimp, crab, and plenty more. In some fisheries, the daily harvest is counted in individual fish. In others, like pink salmon, a daily catch can come in the tens of thousands of pounds, even equally in the weight of an average fire truck. I spoke with these boat captains in the summer of 2021. And while they may live and work in three unique locales along the Alaska coast, here is what they have in common. A love for the commercial fishing life and a sense of alarm over the changing climate. A life in commercial fishing is no easy journey. Weather can be terrible. Crews can work for 24 hours straight. Mechanical breakdowns spell disaster and lost earnings. It's hard work. Yeah, I think that's part of what really attracted me to fishing was that hard work and how you work and what you get done really matters. Um, the attitude you bring to the work certainly matters too, um, but that's what counts is ultimately what you get done. Not that you just show up, but that what you get done and you have to do it safely under difficult conditions. It's cold, it's wet, the boat's rolling around, it might be waves crashing across the deck and the wind blowing, but you gotta safely get the work done and do it quickly and efficiently. Out at sea in the harsh elements, this is how fisherman Mike Weber spent his childhood summers on the family fishing boat. It was very enjoyable. It left a good mark on um, in my life. Uh, taught me many things. Taught me to uh, respect the environment. It taught me to work hard. It taught me how to follow rules and regulations. There's, there's a lot of pluses to learning that kind of stuff at a young age. And our family tree goes down to Yakutat area and all the rivers in between Korova and Yakutat has kind of our family history in it. And, um, and there were the Clinket people and my mother's was a, a Lutik. Uh, so I kind of got a little bit of native ancestry from both sides of my parents and both sides, their parents were always from this area so it's like um i feel really connected when i'm when i go anywhere in prince william sound or if i go down the coast where i'm fishing now or anywhere um i just feel like you know i'm always watched over you know by my ancestors um it's kind of a a real good feeling andrew captains a highly mechanized 58 foot salmon boat using what's called a purse saying net to catch pink salmon in Prince William Sound. He says there's beauty in the way people work together. It's a choreographed dance when we sit and pick up our net, but each person's doing a solo in the context of this dance. And it's the same solo each time. Um, and I say a dance, the person on deck is stacking this enormous net by hand and, and with the use of hydraulic equipment. Uh, it's intensely physical. Um, and the footwork counts, the, the movement of the hand counts. It, it truly is um, a physical performance. And it truly is a performance. Um, 
and the third member of the crew is in actually in another boat. There are two boats involved. It's a small tugboat that handles the beach end of the net. Um, that person has to coordinate exactly with the big boat and the people on it. Um, they're handing off lines to one another. The small boat tows the big boat while you're picking up the net, and it has to be towed exactly right, or it will make it impossible for the person stacking the net to stack the net. Um, so there's this interchange. Uh, three people doing three completely different things, absolutely in unison, 12 to 20 times a day. Um, when this net is set, it's 225 fathoms long. A fathom is six feet. Uh, so it's a big, heavy thing. It weighs three and a half tons, just the net. Um, and so on my boat, I have two fairly small young women retrieving this three and a half ton net out of the ocean, including the fish, in 10 to 11 minutes. So things are moving really fast. Mike, Linda, and Andrew love the fishing life. They know the world around them so intimately. Oceans, fish, weather, the feel of the air. And that world is changing. As you'll hear, fishermen are especially attuned to the water. And in the Gulf of Alaska, a submarine heat wave popularly known as the blob. Yes, actually named after the old horror flick, offered a sudden wake-up call. It was the most severe temperature spike ever seen in a century of record-keeping in the North Pacific. Ocean temps rose more than 6 degrees Fahrenheit in 2014, then stayed there for more than two years. For these fishermen, the marine heat wave was more than a strange anomaly. It threatened their livelihood. Scientists say more heat waves and their lingering effects are likely. Certainly my understanding of climate change has been driven by the science presented over decades that we were pushing planetary limits and that we were seeing acidification of the ocean and warming the, of the atmosphere. Uh, so certainly it's been a quite a while where I've recognized the reality of climate change and its impacts, but actually observing those changes and the impacts um, firsthand would go back to, you know, three or four years ago when the blob hit the Gulf of Alaska, we saw 80% drop in the abundance of Pacific cod over the, the time frame of that blob and seeing all these seabirds washing up dead um, on the beaches, reading about the mass of whale strandings and the big increase in whale strandings in Alaska, and then also um, seeing, well, video of walrus struggling, um, seals struggling, polar bears, you know, as their ice environment melts. Um, and then I think driving it home from the Pacific Northwest through Yukon River in the Arctic, the 
water being so warm that salmon were literally cooking in the streams before they could spawn. Um, so it became very graphic, very real over the last four years to all of us in Alaska who were, are witnessing those changes firsthand. For Andrew in Prince William Sound, the change was sudden, and even from his boat, he could see it plain as day. The helm of a fishing boat is like the dashboard of a car, but with extra gauges tracking things like sea temperature. I'm required to refrigerate my catch by the people who buy the, buy the fish, by the canneries. And so we run this big refrigeration system. And every time we go fishing, we tank down with 90,000 pounds of water in this enormous tank in the middle of the boat and chill it from ambient, whatever it is outside the boat, down to 34 degrees Fahrenheit. And so obviously the cost of doing that depends on the difference between the ambient and 34 degrees Fahrenheit. We, two years ago, um, had ambient temperatures of midsummer around 66, 67 degrees. If you calculate the amount of energy needed to account for the difference between what used to be the normal and what we got two years ago, it translates at the end of a season literally into tens of thousands of dollars. So we actually have a, a monetary measure of rising ocean temperatures. We even at one stage started lowering a big pipe off the boat 100 feet down with a big gas pump on the deck to try and get cold water from depth. It, it didn't really work. Uh, but it, it, we were that desperate at that point. Um, so that, as far as the saltwater part of it and global warming is concerned, our waters have warmed very dramatically. Um, and it doesn't take a scientist at this point to be well aware of that. Linda and Mike process some of their catch on board the fishing vessel, then sell their fresh catch directly to customers like families, restaurants, and fish markets across the U.S. Cleaning a fish for market is delicate, attentive work. And when Mike cleans a fish, he pays attention. And in 2014, for the first time ever, there was something different about the sockeye salmon he was pulling from the sea. There weren't as many fish, and the fish were smaller. Some fish came with lesions on their skin. Also, he could see that they'd been feeding voraciously on a small fish called Ulicon known locally, a bit playfully, as hooligan. And that was unusual. But when you see a sockeye with a, a belly full of hooligan, um, you know dang well that they're coming back hungry and that the ocean is not healthy, um, not a, in a healthy state to provide them with the fish, uh, fish's food that they need. To get back home again. Andrew, Mike, and Linda are all underway in uncertain waters. They're navigating so many questions, how they fish and where, along with how much their expertise and hard work will translate to yearly earnings. 
It's only natural to look back at the past and wonder. And what's clear is this. What lay ahead is very different than the past. Andrew knows this well. This is an area that I have thought a lot about. Uh, it's hard not to if you live around here because the effects of climate change, unlike other places in the world, are very dramatic here. Since I arrived here 40 years ago, the Columbia Glacier has retreated 14 miles, 14 miles in 40 years. I'm old enough to have lived in a previous world, so to speak. When I was a child, the world seemed limitless. I can remember people saying, oh, nothing we could do will ever affect any of this. Our effects are so small. But you know, when I was 10 years old, the population of the Earth was only 2 billion. So it truly was a different world. Mike also grew up in a different world. He's 61, which means if he follows the family tradition, he isn't even close to a fisherman's retirement age. We don't retire. Um, yeah, my uncle's going to be 90 and he's still fishing. My dad just retired at 83. Uh, so I got another 20 plus years in me if I'm going to stand up next to those guys. Um, I'm, I'm worried for for my children and my grandchildren, um, what our future holds with this global warming. And there's, there's gotta be, there's a, there's a way to fix it. We all just need to get on the same page and we all need to, we all need to work towards the same goal. And, uh, uh, it's just, I can't tell you what that is, but I know through what I've dealt in life, it's pretty easy to uh, to move forward. For Linda, moving forward means action. She's helping to lead a pilot project to convert fishing boats to renewable energy, for one. And it means changes in policy. We absolutely need a price on carbon to change the way we address our use of resources and of non-renewable resources and the impact of combustion and um, our use of those non-renewable resources on the climate and ultimately on the health of the planet and on our health that the, we ignore those external costs right now and we can't afford to ignore them any longer. So. Um, uh, certainly a big proponent of a, a fee on carbon, a carbon fee and dividend system that offsets impacts to make sure that um, social justice is part of the solution to addressing climate change. Our guests understand change. They work amid shifting winds. The ocean will rise and fall with the tides. They also know there needs to be a big and fundamental shift in energy choices and future greenhouse gas emissions. Individual action counts, too. And for boat captains like Linda, the moment for real transformational change is now. Know who caught your fish. Ask questions about how your fish was caught. Look for community-supported fishery programs. We run one, Alaskan Zone. Um, you know, it's fish caught locally, sustainably by fishing families, processed in a fisherman-owned processing and marketing cooperative. Think about it. 
ask questions about it and 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 do your best to source from sustainable whether it's sustainable farmers ranchers or or fishermen bottom line is you gotta you gotta accept things and then once you do then things will will start to change so uh climate change is one thing that everybody needs to accept you know because our future is not good with climate change right now. It's just going to get worse and worse. And we can get a lot of a lot of the people in the U.S. to think differently. Um, like in Norway and Europe, you know, those guys are light years in front of us. We could all start thinking on that same pattern and get on a timeline. You know, we're going to do okay. We've heard quite a lot in this episode about the blob marine heat wave that began in 2014 in the North Pacific, then lingered for more than two years, devastating the cod fishery, crushing salmon returns in certain locales, and killing off tens of thousands of Pacific seabirds. For more on the North Pacific's worst marine heat wave, I recommend watching a short film titled The Blob, made by Ben Collins in conjunction with scientists at the U.S. Geological Survey. Also, Alaska Public Media went to Kodiak and reported on the sudden collapse of the cod fishery in the Gulf of Alaska. And for a five-year retrospective, check out the journal Science. It published an article saying the blob could become the new normal. Find these links in the show notes. Also keep in mind the Nature Conservancy in Alaska has been hosting a timely series of roundtable discussions on climate change, innovation, and action in Alaska, and you can find future sessions as well as past discussions with notable Alaskans at nature.org slash opportunity. Want to know more about what's at stake? Check out the article titled Last Run in Nature Conservancy magazine about Alaska's Bristol Bay home of the largest and most spectacular runs of wild salmon on earth. And hey, do you love Alaska seafood? Go online to check out Mike's Weber Wild Seafoods. It's family-owned in Cordova. Or go to Linda's Alaskan Zone, a community-supported fishery in Sitka, and find links to these great sources of wild seafood in the show notes. To help spread the word about the Tidal Change podcast, you can go to tidalchange.org or share our episodes on social media. You can also send us an email at alaska at tnc.org. That's alaska at tnc.org. Or ping us on Facebook or Twitter, and we'll send you a sticker for your favorite water bottle. Or you could even stick one on your fishing boat. Thank you to Mike Weber, Linda Benkin, and Andrew Smallwood for guiding us through their changing world. Thanks to our production team at Alaska Teen Media Institute. This includes interviews and editing by Yuli Zong, music created by Ormond Lois, and production mentorship provided by Cody Liska and Rosie Robarts. This has been the Tidal Change Podcast, a co-production of Alaska Teen Media Institute and the Nature Conservancy in Alaska. I'm Dustin Solberg. Thanks for listening.